Well, friends, if you want to grab your Bibles with me and open up uh, to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 12. Is that you, Susanna? Susanna Shriver. Welcome home. That was unexpected. Good to have you back. Look forward to catching up with you. All right. Well, friends, let's, let's once more just ask God for his help as we consider his word. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. We remember that your word is living and active. We confess to you that left to ourselves, our hearts are stubborn and blind and unwilling to to respond. So we ask you, Father, we, we believe that you are true and good and that your word is life. And so we pray that you would help us to understand and not just to hear and understand, but to act upon your word, that we might be doers of your word. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, if you've been uh, with us for a while, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. There are actually four Gospel accounts of Jesus and his life, his teaching uh, and and his life. Uh, John is one of those Gospels, so we kind of work our way through that Gospel, thinking carefully about who Jesus is and what that means for us uh, as his followers. John's gospel can actually, one way, to, one way to kind of break up the book, it's kind of helpful, you can break the gospel of John into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 12 are known as the book of signs. Those signs is evidence of who he is. And then we're at the dividing point. This is kind of the hinge point of the book. Chapters 13 through 21 then are known as the, the book of glory. So you have the book of signs, the book of glory, where in the book of glory you see him going to the cross and being exalted through his death and his resurrection. But as we come to the close of these first 12 chapters, we've seen Jesus, over 12 chapters, perform miracle after miracle, sign after sign. And crowds of people, many of the, most of them Jews, have followed Jesus around, listened to Jesus teach, seen his miracles, received his, his care. And yet, most of the Jewish people who were around him for his three years of earthly ministry did not believe. Or if they did believe, their belief was shallow or phony, and in due time they would walk away. John told us from the very beginning in the prologue that this would happen, John 1 verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So in that sense, we should, not be, we should not be surprised by the rejection of Jesus from the Jewish people. But this is Jesus. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah who they've been waiting for. I imagine that if Jesus had a public relations representative, I imagine he'd come to Jesus and say, listen, Jesus, your approval ratings are, are sinking they're dropping. This, this whole thing we've been doing, it's not working. We've got we've to back up and rethink this. We've got to have a new plan. And if you're a Jew who's living in the first century and you, you're trying to figure out what to do with Jesus, you'd know that many of your countrymen have rejected Jesus. They did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And so you can imagine a Jewish person in the first century thinking, My goodness, if my own friends, if my own family, if the the Pharisees who are the religious experts, if they've all rejected Jesus, if they did not believe, then how can I trust Jesus? 
How can I know that he is who he said he is? How can I give my life to him when all these people rejected him? Fast forward 2,000 years to today, and the question of who is Jesus, that question remains a hotly debated question. Some people never believed that, they never did and never will believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And a recently growing secularism has actually emboldened many to, who are leaving the faith to now talk openly about why they don't believe anymore. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe it's a, you've, you know a close friend or family member who's talked to you in private about why they don't believe anymore. Or, or maybe it's more public. Maybe it's the, the recent headline in the, the newspaper or, or uh, the TV program, or TV news, that, 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 that shows the headline of a well-known religious leader who no longer believes. Or it could be a, a, a YouTube or a TikTok that has gone viral because this person's sharing why they left the faith. For whatever reason, it seems that we hear of these people walking away from the faith more frequently now. Seeing scores of people not believe the truth about Jesus, hearing loud testimony of people leaving the faith is painful. It's unsettling. And it's painful because the person who is walking away from the faith is often somebody that we know and love. It's unsettling because it may leave us with our doubts now. They doubted it might kind of stir up doubts in our own hearts or it might raise doubts in the lives of those around us in our own family or church who do believe. So what are we supposed to do with unbelief? How can we care for folks who are struggling with the competing claims in their heart or their mind? How do we help folks who are struggling with doubt in the church? Jude 22 tells us, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Don't crush them or condemn them. Help them. We show mercy because we need not fear the tough questions that we wrestle with. We all have those tough questions that we wrestle with. And and we don't need to be afraid of those tough questions because if the Bible is true, friends, Christianity will not come unraveled, even with the most difficult of questions. And so we can ask the tough questions because Scripture is true. There is no reason for us to ever be ashamed of the truth of God's word. We can be confident. And it's this idea of strengthening our confidence that is John's purpose for the believer in John chapter 12. John wants to strengthen our confidence that Jesus is who he says he is, and he's worthy of our trust. So again, how are we to understand the widespread unbelief that we see in the first century and later on of the Jewish people in their response to Jesus? How are we to understand that? In answering that question in chapter 12, John will provide the foundation for us that will give us a greater assurance, a greater confidence in what we believe. So as we work our way through John 12, verses 37 through 50, the text is going to answer two questions. First, point one, if you're taking notes, why unbelief? Point number one, why unbelief? That's verses 37 through 43. And then point two, 
Why believe? That's verses 44 through 50. Point one, why unbelief? Point two, why believe? So let's begin with point number one. Why unbelief? Look with me at God's word starting in chapter 12, verse 37. Though he had done many, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You'll notice in this section, Isaiah is mentioned twice. He's an Old Testament prophet serving about 700 years before Jesus, and John will quote two sections from the prophet Isaiah. The first comes from the well-known chapter of Isaiah, chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, we see the Christ presented as the suffering servant. There we're told that the Christ would have no form of majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. We're told that he be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. I'd really encourage you at some point this afternoon to read Isaiah 53 and just meditate on it. It's worth rereading and reflecting on. But that's where John is quoting from. And specifically, he picks Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, and quotes that. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So as Isaiah, as a prophet, has been preaching God's word to God's people, they have refused to believe. God's powerful arm to deliver his people was on display, but they still didn't believe. They chose to ignore it. And I think John quotes this verse to show that the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, 700 years after Isaiah prophesied that, the rejection of Jesus and what he taught and the, and the rejection of his miracles as a, as a display of God's mighty arm was actually a fulfillment. It was actually a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 verse one. In other words, even their rejection of Jesus falls within God's sovereign plan. That's mind-blowing. And then to, to, to make that point even clearer, he goes on and quotes another section from the prophet Isaiah. This time, not from Isaiah 53, but Isaiah 6. Here in Isaiah 6, the Christ is not presented as a suffering servant. It's a drastically different picture. In Isaiah 6, the Christ is, is, is pictured as the exalted king, seated on his throne. And, and, and the, the train of his robe is filling the temple and the seraphim are just so overwhelmed with his glory that they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
It's an awesome scene in Isaiah 6. And after seeing this vision of God, the prophet's knees still knocking, trembling in fear, the king seated on the throne calls Isaiah to go and preach. Go and preach to my people. And specifically what he says in this commission is, I want you to go preach my word knowing that you will be rejected. You will be ignored. You will be despised by your hearers as you preach my word. Isaiah takes that on, and that's his ministry. (laughs) Tough ministry. But as John looks back at Isaiah 6, verse 10, he sees the current rejection of Jesus as a fulfillment of what God has said through Isaiah. The rejection of Jesus falls within God's sovereign plan. But we have to read this section carefully because there's some hard things that John says. There's a part of me that just wants to kind of skip by them, but we need to look at them and wrestle with what they're saying. Look at verse 40. He says, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. You read that verse, if you've been reading with us this week ahead of time, as we encourage you to, you might, you might be asking, well, what's going on here? Verse 40 is saying that he, that's God, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. What's going on? What does John mean by that? I mean, doesn't God want to open the eyes of the blind? Doesn't Jesus say that he came to open the eyes of the blind in, chapter, in John chapter 9? Doesn't he say in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, that God sent him to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind? He did. Both those things are true. And what's more, when we keep reading in chapter 12, by the time we get to verse 47, Jesus will say, I did not come to judge the world. I came, why? To save the world. So what is, what's going on here? You feel the tension? Why would God harden hearts, blind eyes? Friends, whenever you're reading the Bible and you come across something like this and you're asking, what does this mean? You have to back up and look at the context. The context will always drive a right understanding of the meaning. So we need to read this verse in context. Verse 37 of our our text begins with reminding us that Jesus came doing many signs. And these signs were meant to to pile up the evidence, to pile up the evidence, to pile up the evidence. This is who I am. I'm the Christ. I'm the Son of God. That's exactly what he's doing. He's showing them who he is. And as we read through John's gospel, we see that, that that God had given his people the scriptures, the Old Testament, to point them to Jesus. We saw this back in chapter 5, verse 39, that the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. So these Jews had had the whole Old Testament saying, here he comes, here he comes. Look for him to prepare the way for Jesus. And when Jesus comes in his early ministry, he's preaching. He's, he, he's over and over again preaching and reasoning with and pleading with these people to see and to believe what God has said in the past, that he's coming to fulfill that. And he's got all these miracles to back up what he's saying. And yet... With all this evidence, with all this pleading, with all this reasoning, with all this love, with all these scriptures. And yet, John's gospel shows us that the Jewish people stiff-arm Jesus. They stiff-arm God's love. 
They stiff arm God's truth that is on display in Jesus. They didn't want to accept Jesus as the Christ because of what it meant for their lives. And so they ignored the evidence. They stiff armed Jesus over and over and over, and they even called Jesus insane and demon possessed, and they put plans into action to arrest him and to kill him. Friends, God is patient, God is slow to anger. You could say that God has a very long fuse. Praise God for that. But there is an end to his patience. There is an end to that fuse. And when someone persistently, persistently stiff arms God, stiff arms the conviction of the Holy Spirit, stiff arms the truth about Jesus as, 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 as revealed in scripture, when we persistently plug our ears and shut our eyes and we persistently suppress the truth, there is a point when God will say, okay, this is what you want. And he will give that person over to what they want. And Romans 1 talks about this, Romans 1, 18 through 32. And this giving, the giving over of a person to what they want, where they persistently dig their heels in, is actually an expression or display of God's wrath. John, friends, is showing us that the unbelief of the Jews is not the failure of God's word. The unbelief of the Jews does not mean that Jesus is not who he says he is. No, he's reminding us in this section of God's word that it was part, their unbelief was even part of God's sovereign plan. But we've got to be careful here. God's sovereignty is not harsh. It is not manipulative. It is not robotic. Scripture shows us over and over and over that God, God's heart is eager to save. You think of Matthew 23, he, Jesus looks at Jerusalem and says, oh, I wish I could, I, I, I wish I could, to gather you under my wings like a, 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 a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He's willing, they were not willing. God is eager to save. It's man that is reluctant to trust. God is not hardening the hearts of those who would otherwise believe. He's not hardening those who are otherwise innocent. His Wrath is revealed in giving people over to what they persistently demand and want and choose. Well, where do we see that in our text? We see that in Romans 1, but is that in our text this morning? Well, you know, James 2 reminds us that faith without works is dead. That's what we see here. The authorities, we're told in verse 42, believed. They had faith, but did they have works with their faith? No, they didn't act, they, they believed, but they didn't act on it. Why did they not act on their belief? Look at verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They said no to Jesus. They stiff-armed Jesus because they wanted something more than Jesus. They wanted the glory that comes from man more than Jesus. And many of these authorities, they saw the truth, and this is tragic, they saw the truth about Jesus and they agreed with it, but they never acted on it. 
because they loved the glory that comes from man more. They, they end up digging their heels in. They stiff-armed God and his work in their lives, and eventually God would give some of them over. And their eyes would be blinded to the truth about God, and their hearts would become hard and unresponsive to God. It's what we saw in Psalm 135. We become what we worship. If our idols have eyes but don't see and ears but don't hear and mouths but don't speak, if you worship an idol like that, you become like that idol. You can't hear, you can't see, you can't speak. We become like what we worship. That's what's happening. So is God sovereign or are humans responsible? The answer that John 12 gives us with the rest of Scripture agreeing with John 12 is yes. God's sovereignty is never pitted against human responsibility. God is sovereign over all things, all things. And man is responsible. We are not puppets stuck in fatalism. We have real choices with real consequences. So how then does God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, how do those two truths fit together? I don't know. I, have, I don't know. Because the Bible does not tell us. Now, some don't like the tension that God leaves us in intentionally. Some don't like the mystery that God leaves in Scripture. And so what they do with this tension is they will try to speculate and they'll try to resolve the tension by either limiting God's sovereignty or philosophizing in some other way to get rid of that tension. And we need to be very careful we need to be very careful here as a church. I, I understand the tension, but we are people of the word. And so we must not shy away from difficult texts that we don't immediately know what to do with. And we must never go beyond, though, what the scripture teaches. When we wrestle with the Bible, it should not lead to, and then anger and giving up. When we wrestle with difficult texts, it ultimately should lead us to worship. Let me give you an example. A, a parallel text to John 12, in this example, a parallel text is Romans 9, 10, and 11. In Romans 9, the point is God's sovereignty. God has mercy on whoever he wills. Then you go to, John 10, then you go to Romans 10. Okay, we establish God as sovereign in Romans 9, then we, go, then we go to Romans 10. The point of Romans 10 is human responsibility. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So is it God's sovereignty, Romans 9, or is it human responsibility, Romans 10? Paul wrestles with that in Romans 11. How do these fit together? And he concludes, not in frustration, but in worship. Here's how Romans 11 ends. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Church, God has given us all that we need to know. All that we need for life and for godliness. Let's be people of the word. Let's trust him. John is showing us why many did not believe. Why many rejected Jesus. It was a part of his sovereign plan. But how does knowing this, how does knowing that this is part of God's sovereign plan, how does this provide hope and confidence for us as Christians today? 
We said from the very beginning that John's aim is to build our confidence. So how does this difficult text grow us in our confidence as Christians? Let me give you three reasons why, real briefly. Number one, knowing that it was God's fulfillment of his plan refutes the idea that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. And instead, it actually strengthens the argument that he is the Christ, son of God, by showing that this was always God's plan. We don't need to fear that. This is God's plan from the very beginning. Beginning. Second, God's sovereignty is our reason for hope in evangelism. We share the gospel and we pray for our non-Christian friends to believe. Why do we pray? Why do we ask God that they, that they would believe? Because we believe that God changes hearts and raises the dead. And so we share the gospel with confidence and hope. We, we, we pray for our friends who are going to Thailand and planting churches in a very difficult area. Why do we do this? Because we believe that God raises the dead. That's what he did in chapter 11 of John. That's what he does in Ezekiel 37. He, he, he raises the dead, not just physically, but spiritually. Third reason that this gives hope is that in the hands of a sovereign God, even the tragic unbelief and rejection of Jesus, because God is sovereign, he uses that tragic rejection as a tool of redemption. They reject Jesus. Their rejection of Jesus is going to lead to his trial, then his crucifixion. But that will turn into, God will sovereignly use that for the redemption of sinners. Even, listen, even those who previously rejected Jesus did not believe and crucified him. You read Acts chapter 2. Many of those people will believe in Jesus later on. Their rejection will turn into redemption. How? Because God's sovereign. That's our reason for hope. Okay, so how do we apply this to our lives then? I've got one thing for you. Don't live the Christian life alone. Don't be a lone ranger. Join a local church. And if you are a church member, lean into it. Church membership is more than just having your name on a list somewhere. Church membership is something that you put to work It's a tool that God has given you to bolster your assurance, to grow you in assurance about where you stand with him. If you are a member, lean into the relationships of your local church. Open up your schedule, open up your home, open up your heart and your life to other members of First Baptist. We join a church not to earn points with God. That doesn't work that way. We join a church because God uses the church to guard us from having hard and unbelieving hearts. Do you know that? Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, the writer says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So what are we supposed to do? He tells us, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's our relationships being used intentionally, being used biblically. It's us discipling each other, helping us, helping each other follow Jesus. God uses the church to keep us from having hearts that are hardened by deceitfulness of sin. No one wakes up one day and says, you know what? I think I'm gonna ruin my life today. It just happens gradually. We sin, we're ashamed. We isolate ourselves from the the church body. We don't tell anybody about that sin. And what does sin do? Hardens the heart. 
what used to what used to shock us becomes less shocking, and we go deeper and deeper into sin until we end up making a shipwreck of our lives. Friends, we need other people in our church to to exhort us, which means to warn and to encourage us so that we're not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. When I read John 12 and when I read Romans 1, I have to be honest, it makes me shudder. I don't want to make a shipwreck of my life. And I don't trust myself with a 10-foot pole. I need you. I need you. I need the church. And so do you, Christian. So for me, real practically, I have a, a couple of guys that I meet, meet up with very regularly, and I try, we try to do this. We try to exhort one another, warn each other, encourage each other, confess sin with each other. So if I can give a really practical application on that, then for, for all of us, who are, the, who are the two or three people who are local, not, not over in California, but are local, who are part of this church, who are trustworthy, so that you can confess your sin to them, that you can be embarrassingly honest with, and then pray with them on a regular basis. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says that God uses that in the context of a church to keep us from having hardened hearts until we wake up and realize, how did my life get a shipwreck? Being involved in a church is important in guarding the heart, but it's also important for encouragement too. Remember Jude 22, have mercy on those who doubt. So maybe it's not necessarily a sin issue. Maybe you're just, you're weary, you're tired. Maybe you're wrestling with a difficult question. Maybe you're struggling with doubt. Those questions make your faith feel unsteady. Friends, if that's you today, talk to a godly friend in the church. Do it today. Talk to a godly friend in the church. If you're the person that they're coming to, if you have a friend coming to you who's weary or doubting or struggling, make sure that you listen to them. You don't have to have all the answers. Be a friend by listening to them. And then open up God's word, read a passage of scripture with them, and pray with them. And if you need help, if the questions that person's wrestling with is, is, is daunting or you don't know the answer to it, then talk to one of your pastors. You have seven of us. Um, we, we want to walk alongside you as, as part of the flock and seek God together to teach God's word and to, and, to, and to see the encouragement of God's word. That's one of the reasons that God gives shepherds to a local church. It's our joy and our privilege to walk alongside you. So if that's where you're at, talk to us. Let us come alongside of you and to walk with you in that doubt or struggle. Now, does being a member of a church mean that, that, that churches never have people leave the faith? No. We, there are people who are members of the church that do end up renouncing the faith. Last year, our own church family had a member walk away from Christ and left the church. And, and it's heartbreaking. And so we together as a church, we mourned over that. And we continue to try to love that person. And we continue to pray for them. And we continue to love and pray for them and share as we're able to because we believe that God can still change that person's heart. The verdict is not out yet. As long as that person's alive, he can still change that person's heart. But I think one of the things that's hard about this is that when people leave the faith, especially when they're more well-known or they're celebrity, when people leave the faith, those are the things that make the headlines. 
That makes the front page of the news. And so that, those are the things that we begin to hear over and over, and we, and, we think that's, and we begin to think that's the only thing happening. What does not make the headlines are the countless times that somebody is wrestling with doubt, and they open their Bible, and they come to church, and they sing with the saints, and they talk with a friend, and they talk to their pastor, and by God's grace, they work through their doubt, and they come out the other side of that doubt, believing and trusting God more than when they first was wrestling with that question. You don't hear those stories. You don't see those on the headlines of the newspaper. It doesn't make the news. Person keeps on believing. We don't see those in the headlines of tomorrow's newspaper in the world. But you know where you see it? You see it on the headlines of heaven. Luke 15 tells us the angels rejoice. They celebrate. They throw a party when one, when one sinner repents or when one comes back. So church... Keep doing that. Receive those, have mercy on those who are doubting. Pray with them, open God's word with them, walk with them. And if you are doubting, asking those resting questions, lean into your relationships in the local church. May God use us to grow us in our faith together. As he already has, may he continue to do that more and more. One more question that may come up when you read this text is a personal one, though. You, hear, you read verse 40 and you see God blinding the eyes, hardening the hearts. And you might ask, has my heart been hardened? Maybe you feel cool towards God and your zeal has died down and you're wondering that this morning. Have I stiff-armed God so much that he's handed me over? Well, pastorally, what I would say to you is that if you're asking that question and you're concerned about it, it's very likely that you're not. Because somebody who is handed over, they don't care. Their heart is so hardened, they don't ask that question. So if you're concerned, it's a really good sign that that's God convicting you and calling you to come back. But I want to think about two different people in Scripture. Judas Iscariot, who we saw back in chapter 12, verse 4. He had a hard heart, and he made a shipwreck of his faith. Peter, who we'll see in chapter 18, will publicly deny Jesus three times. But instead of falling away, Peter's restored to Jesus in chapter 20. So you have Judas who fell away, Peter who denounces Christ publicly three times, but he's a true believer. Theologically, a true Christian will not, cannot lose their salvation. We saw it in John 10. No one can snatch a sheep from the hand of the good shepherd. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But how can we know if our faith is real like Peter's or fake like Judas? How can we know if we're a Peter or a Judas? Ask God, he knows perfectly. But we don't have the spiritual x-ray vision that God does. You can't look into my heart and know perfectly what's going on in my heart. I can't look into your heart and know perfectly what's going on in your heart or where you stand with the Lord. Time will tell. And that's why we need the church. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to know, that's why, that's why your involvement in a local church needs to be more than just sitting here and then leaving. You need to know other people. They need to know you. We need to confess our sin and our struggles and our, 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 our victories that have come by God's grace. We need to know each other so that we can help each other in this way. Friends, our confidence 
Our assurance is not based upon our, a decision that we made 20 years ago. Your assurance that you're a Christian is not based upon the fact that you're a member of this church. Your assurance and confidence that you're a Christian is not that you were baptized last week or let alone 20 years ago. Our assurance rises and falls based on what we do now, how we respond or not to God's voice today. Hebrews 3, verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Friends, God is speaking right now through his word to us. Believe, obey, trust. And that brings us to our second point, second question. Why? Why believe? Look at verse 44 with me. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Notice in verse 46 that Jesus reminds us what he said repeatedly in John's gospel. I have come into the world as light. When you walk into a dark room, you turn on the light, the light shines in the darkness so that we can see. The light, light reveals things. And so as the light of the world, Jesus reveals God to us. That's what John was arguing in the, in the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. No one has ever seen God, but he has made himself known to us. How? Through Jesus, his Word. And so as the light of the world, Jesus reveals God to us. And notice we see that in his claims here about himself. Look at verse 44. Whoever believes in me, believes in him who sent me. That's God the Father. Verse 45, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. That's God the Father. Verse 49, to hear Jesus is to hear God the Father who gave him what to say and what to speak. You hear Jesus, you hear the Father. And so his point in this section is that the authority behind everything that he said, the authority behind everything that he did, the authority behind everything that he claimed is God. That's why you should believe him. To ignore Jesus is to ignore God. To reject Jesus and to look for another way is to reject God and to meet a dead end. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I think that's why Jesus cried out as he does in verse 44. Notice he's crying out for all to hear. Who's he crying out to? Well, we're not told. 
But the people in the two verses right before he cries out are the authorities who believed in him but refused to act on that truth or that, that belief. And so they believed, but their, faith, their belief was phony and shallow. They remained in darkness. And so Jesus, I think, cries out because, verse 46, he doesn't want them to remain in darkness. Verse 47, he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And so to a group, this is remarkable, to a group of people who have ignored him, to a group of people who have mocked him, who have threatened to kill him, who have called him insane or demon-possessed, even then, his heart is still for their good. He's crying out to them, be saved, come to me. His heart longs for their salvation. His heart longs that they might be rescued. That's God's heart. But at this point, they were not willing. So chapter 12 is the end of a big section. It's the end of the book of signs. This is, this is Jesus' last and final appeal to the crowds. Starting for 13, he just speaks privately to his disciples, and he won't speak to the crowds again. This is his last cry to the crowds. If Jesus had approval ratings like a politician, I think that at the end of his ministry, they'd be low. And if Jesus had a, a PR rep, I imagine that they would urge Jesus to, you need to rebrand you got to back up and rethink your approach because your numbers are looking really bad. People are ditching you. They're turning away from you. They're leaving you. They're, not, they're, not, they're, they're out to kill you. This is not good. We've got to back up and rebrand and rethink. Church, we may be tempted. And I think in particular for our young people, who are, you're going to feel this more and more as the world pushes against the biblical idea of who Jesus is. We're going to be tempted to ignore the difficult parts of the Bible that show us who God is. And we're gonna be tempted to uh, remake Jesus into our own image, to, to make Jesus, we're, we're gonna be tempted to try and make Jesus more palatable, more acceptable, more fitting into the world and its current values and ways of thinking. And I think part of the reason that we're gonna be tempted to do that is so that we fit in with the world. There's a lots of opinions. There's lots of opinions about Jesus that are floating around the world right now. Lots, you can go to the bookstore and there's, there's competing claims and ideas and opinions about who Jesus is, what he came to do. There's lots of words in this world about Jesus. But there's only one word that is reliable and true. It's God's word. That's what he says in verse 49. I have not spoken of my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Friends, commit yourself to know God as he reveals himself in his word. Pray that we as a church would never be ashamed of Jesus. 
Pray that we would never be ashamed of God and his word. Pray that we as a church would come to what the apostles did in Acts 5. Pray that we would rejoice if we are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Friends, to make Jesus more palatable, to, make, to remake Jesus in our own image is to reject the God of the Bible. And as Jesus warns in verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. I told you who I was. You rejected that. Your rejection is your judgment. Yesterday marked the 20th anniversary of 9-11. One of the deadliest terrorist attacks in human history. It's a sober reminder, not only of the evil in this world, but that tomorrow is not promised to any of us. Those people that died that day, tragically, did not think that they would die that day. And in a fallen world, there are countless examples of disease and injustice and suffering and loss, darkness that threatens to overtake us. But our hope is in Jesus, who went deeper than the worst a broken world can throw at us. Jesus went into the grave. And in the darkest of places, he took on our sin on himself. He removed the sting of death. He bore the righteous wrath of God that our sins deserve. And then he rose again from the grave, victorious. Victorious over sin, over Satan, and over death. There is darkness in this world that we will have to endure in the coming days. But John 1.5 reminds us, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So church, let's trust in him. Let's trust in the one who shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome him. And if you're not yet a Christian, I pray that you see what God affirms about Jesus today, that he is the king who rules and who is set apart above all, who is holy, holy, holy. And he is the king who came to serve, to suffer, to die in our place and rise again for our salvation that we might go free. Turn from your sin. Trust in him today. Any questions about that? We'll have pastors to the door. I'll be up front. We'd love to talk with you more about that as well. Let's pray together.